2: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ2.
0: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD. Along with me for this journey is Will the Thrill. Hello. And TJ 2 the Deuce, taking him a little longer to do it. Waiting on Will.
1: Yeah, wait on me. I cracked the
3: bear I cracked the beer open already. Did y'all not hear it?
1: Oh no, no I couldn't we, hear we it couldn't now. hear it that time. Can we? Can we? There you go. It's <laughs> like <laughs> I'm there. <laughs>
3: yeah, like, guys. It's like it's like hanging out with the guy from Police Academy. Oh, making yeah. all these making all the funny mouth noises, you sounded like a beer,
0: speaking of funny mouth noises last night, me and Mr. Hickey mm-hmm. actually got to go to a concert so oh, we gotta wow. got
3: get out of
4: the house we which was. out of the house and it was awesome
3: so so this is obviously this is your first post covid musical experience, right. In yeah,
0: Yep, yep, we figured out that the the last person that I saw pre-COVID was actually Mark Knopfler in Berkeley. So, not too shabby of a last hurrah for me. My, but my.
3: also you know, now you, you had mentioned that to me here recently and I was, I started thinking like, gosh, what was the last concert I went to pre-COVID? And I, if I rem- remember correctly, it was Robert Earl Keane in oh. Greenville.
4: Also my oh, nice. choice. Uh,
3: yes. Last last late November, or early December.
0: And the last movie that we saw was a documentary uh, that uh, reduces everyone to tears all the time called Dear Zachary. And we I was, saw, we uh, saw a it with the filmmaker. We actually saw it with the director and I fangirled the entire time. Shocking.
3: I I preferred the money pit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, so the concert experience was really interesting because it was a no-contact concert. And it was held at the OC Fairground. So it's this like massive space and they had three or four giant screens up and you pulled in like a drive-in movie like you would do it in a drive movie and then you turn your radio onto a, a particular station and it pumps the music in but they also have speakers everywhere if you want to cut your car off and so you just hang out in or around your car
3: now hasn't um just just to interject has Hasn't uh, Garth done a couple of shows like this?
0: I believe he has, but I don't know if he was actually present for it.
3: I think he like, was, like, was piped it, in at, from somewhere else. At, at drive-in theaters, though, where people were able to come in and at least have some semblance of a concert experience. Correct. Right. Yeah,
0: because we, yeah. we saw Queen Nation last night, which was okay. a Queen cover band. And I've already posted that on Instagram, but the guy was really like, Freddie. okay, Freddie yeah. was incredible, uh, but the guy who was Brian May was awesome, and he had a fake red special, and his hair was spot on. Oh wow! And it was it was honestly it was great. He was we we had was uh,
3: he also a rocket scientist? Just a complete. <laughs> we, we didn't. ask. We, we couldn't ask. Okay. We couldn't get yeah. close enough
0: to ask. But yeah,
3: Dr. It, May is in fact a bleeping rocket scientist. Dr. Brian <laughs> May. Dr. May. Dr. May right.
0: The person who I simultaneously had nothing to say and everything to say, <laughs> uh-huh. but, like the first, like I met him two nights in a row. First night, all I could eke out was "thank you,"
1: and then the second night it was just
4: ha, ah, yeah, what's Well,
1: to be fair, I was—I knew the second night was coming because I was with you. And uh, I had time to practice my phrase to him, which was, it's a pleasure to meet you. You are my favorite rock guitarist of all time. Which is, uh, yeah, saying to the point. Yeah, but I yeah. practiced it. I spent hours. Right. <laughs> no,
0: yeah, no, mine was every word in the English language at the same time. Just, I I was not okay. <laughs> and, and then he took a photo with us, and I looked really creepy. <laughs> I, there's just no way I could not be creepy. I'm so the, sorry, the, Dr. Brown. The few I, pa-
3: the few pictures I've ever had taken with uh, celebrity types, I usually look drunk. And there's a, there's a strange <laughs> reason for that. Wait a second. i None of it, you could probably ever guess what that is.
0: Is it because when you were born, they had to use those weird forceps on mm-hmm. your, your head to jerk you out? And
3: also, that, and also uh, if I'm about to meet somebody, I'm like, oh, nerves are getting a, uh, the better of me. Let me have a drink. Yeah,
4: <laughs> let, me, yeah.
1: let me put those nerves where they belong. I just usually
0: have too much to tell them because I know our, our time with them is short. and Right. And I try to get as much in. Um, the same thing happened when I met Angela Lansbury. Yes. Oddly enough, where I basically told her my entire life story day by day, raising right. Murder, She Wrote, and Beauty and the Beast as, like, bullet points. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Angela Lansbury.
3: Just- Didn't she just pat you on the head and say, oh, thank
1: you, or something like that? (laughs) Something to that effect. She took her hand like a very old, wise grandmother and just nodded and smiled. And it was a reading of a play. So after Lindley finished the word vomit, she said, did you like the play, dear? Which led to more word vomit.
0: (laughs) uh, Yeah, but she, she saw that I was holding a DVD of Anastasia. And I think she was genuinely confused as to the fact that I had a copy of it because it's not the most popular um cartoon no, no ever and she was like where did you get this I was like, i've had it since 1997 and she signed it for me so but,
3: i once uh, presented i once presented um comedian and singer tim wilson with <laughs> an album he did not know he existed of <laughs>
0: that is incredible
3: it, it's one of those deals where he had he had been on a smaller label and they ended up signing i think with capital a bigger label uh-huh. his former label unbeknownst to him just took a bunch of stuff and put it together and threw it out to try to make a few (laughs) extra bucks. And he had never seen it. (laughs) And he actually autographed it. Travis, thanks. This album sucks. (laughs) That was pretty amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, let's talk about someone whose albums don't suck. Mm -hmm. And is also part of, part of our uh, collection this month on the Rat Pack. So who are we covering
1: today? Hmm. We are it's covering. Tommy's Joey Bishop. Uh, nobody's ever going to cover. We are.
3: Uh, <laughs> oh, maybe next week.
1: Not, <laughs> I'll give you a hint. We're not covering him yeah. next week.
3: Yes. <laughs> no. No. We're doing. We're doing one today on the King of Cool, the MVP of the Rat Pack, a Ooh, star wow. of radio, TV, on that one. movies, music, and comedy. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Mr. Dean Dino Martin. Dean. If what if what were you about to fight me on? Yeah, I gotta say, Sammy is
0: Sammy's kind of my dude.
3: Well, no, I, those the, he was actually referred to as the MVP of the Rat Pack and the King of Cool. Those were actually two monikers. Well, I agree with the King theory.
0: of. I, I agree with the King of Cool, but man, Sammy was kind of the MVP because boy could he
3: dance. He could sing. Right, he could. Are act. you saying Dean couldn't? Well, he probably couldn't. Actually, now that you mention it, but he <laughs> <You> didn't <laughs> have to. <Yeah. laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you up front, as I deal with uh, his actual name and the name of some of his family, I'm probably going to butcher them, and I apologize in advance.
0: <laughs> well, um, T, for a very long time, we've said this is not the pronunciation podcast.
3: Right. Uh, we're also Thank from God. South Carolina. Right. Which means and, um and I'm, that, I'm that well we into have into disadvantage. And I'm, and I'm well into a six-pack of Shinerbox, So <laughs> Okay,
0: okay. So we're okay. going to go ahead and uh, throw up that disclaimer right there, guys. We apologize for any Italian names that are butchered.
3: Yes. Uh, although you are of, of, of Italian lineage, correct? Will the Thrill?
1: That is correct.
3: Okay. Well, you, you may be able country. to that. please, please, I will not be offended if you correct me as I, if, if, if the something t- stands out to you that I'm, that I'm trotting all over.
1: I will do my best. You are Naples, correct? Uh, Naples. Yeah, technically. Although it's, it's, Suspected that my ancestry from that side of the family went to Naples from further Northern Italy, perhaps even Venice or Genoa. Or, That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Travis,
1: my, 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 uh, my, the the
3: Jenkins family was evicted essentially from Ireland from, for drinking and fighting too much.
1: Was told. <laughs> That's like Def Leppard kicking out Pete Willis. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: I think now would probably be a good time to explain to people that, Travis is my brother, my blood through and through. Yes. The only brother that I have, but you are technically my half brother. Right. Correct. If he says the Jenkins side, there's a reason for that. It's because we have the same mother, the same beautiful, wonderful, giving, loving, funny mother. And we uh, both have different fathers.
3: Right. So there you go. And the Jenkinses actually uh, were from England and then they uh, migrated to Ireland. And from Ireland, they came to America. Um, but apparently, their stay over uh, in uh, in Ireland wasn't long because they weren't welcome. They're <laughs> little little rowdy.
0: Okay. I can't imagine that. Right? It's crazy. That's so weird.
3: Dino Paul Crocetti, I'm going to go with? Crocetti, yeah. Crocetti, okay. Was born on June 7th, 1917, in Steubenville, Ohio, the son of Italian father Gaetano Alfonso Crocetti. Born in 1894, an Italian-American mother, Angela Ne Barra, who was born in 1899. His parents were born or, or were married in 1914, which means that his father was about 19 and his mother was 15 at the time,
1: which is, it, was probably yeah, not terribly normal.
3: uncommon in the early 1900s, I'm guessing.
1: And, and I'd wager they probably lied on their marriage certificates.
3: Probably so. Yeah. Um, his father, who was a barber, was originally from... God. Monteselvano, Abruzzo? Does that sound okay. like a place that exists? Uh, is that is that Sicily? No, I don't
1: think it's Sicily.
3: His okay. mother's origins are also believed to be from Abruzzo, which we're going to go with, and I don't have to say those anymore, thank God. <laughs> Although they are not clearly actually known. Uh, Martin had one older brother named William Alfonso. Who was born in 1916? His first language was actually Italian, and he did not speak English until he started school at the age of five. He attended Grant Elementary School in Steubenville, where he was sometimes bullied because of the broken English that he spoke. Uh, as a teenager, he started to play drums as a hobby. He dropped out of Steubenville High School in the tenth grade because he thought he was smarter than all of his teachers. Ah, that's amazing. So he didn't initially get into the entertainment business. Um, well, I guess he kind of did, but it was just a different sort of entertainment business in that he bootlegged liquor. That's um, tied to the
1: entertainment industry, I'd argue. Sure. Hey.
3: Um, it's, it's an entertaining thing to do. Um, I would say that,
0: that there is a show called, the uh, Moonshiners and yep. that is entertainment.
3: A couple of them, uh, live one County over from me in <laughs> South Carolina. Um, he worked in a steel mill and he served as a croupier at a speakeasy and he was a blackjack dealer and a welterweight boxer, which I did <laughs> not know until we started, I started doing the research for this. Wow. At 15, he was a, a boxer who billed himself as Kid Crochet. His pro, uh, prize fighting earned him a broken nose, which was later straightened, uh, a scarred lip permanently. Many broken knuckles, which was a result of his inability inability to afford good tape <laughs> to tape up his his fist with and a badly bruised body <laughs> of his tw- of his twelve bouts, he joked that he quote won all but eleven of them um, <laughs> that's amazing however, he may have been selling himself short with that comment as one source put his actual record as as a boxer at twenty four and six, which would be more than respectable um for a time. Uh, He shared a New York City apartment with uh, a guy named Sonny King, who was also starting out in show business, and neither of them had any money. So the two reportedly charged people to watch them bare-knuckle box each other in their apartment, fighting until one was (laughs) not (laughs)
4: unconscious. That's amazing. (laughs) Wow.
3: So, so... So, so Dino's early life was very much like every Jean Claude Van Damme movie ever. There was a secret ass there, there was a secret ass whipping contest involved.
1: Uh, we did a crossover Jean Claude Van Dino.
3: <laughs> Dino. <laughs> Jean Claude Van Dino. I mean, Dino. I feel like <laughs> yes. I feel like we
0: need to get Chris Christopherson and Dino in the same room.
3: Oh God, that would have I, that's too much awesome for the universe. I think there would be a rip in the time space continuum. A black hole. <laughs> <Hall would laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So the so for. So for for whatever change people would throw them, the two of them would bare knuckle fight each other in their apartment until one of them was knocked unconscious. That's Um, hysterical. Hey,
0: honey, I think I've got a way for us to make some money
3: (laughs) during quarantine. Yeah. Martin gave up boxing to work as a roulette stick man and a full-time croupier in an illegal casino behind a tobacco shop.
4: (laughs) That is fantastic.
3: Where he had started as a stock boy. At the same time, he sang with local bands, calling himself Dino Martini, after Metropolitan opera uh, singer Nino Martini. (laughs) He got his break working for the Ernie McKay Orchestra. Uh, He sang in a crooning style influenced by Harry Mills of the Mills Brothers and Perry Como. He actually mimicked the style of Perry Como until he was a good enough singer that that he could stand on his own two feet. But Perry Como is actually someone that he copied early in his career.
0: And can I just say, like, sure, I I know that we just had our draft. We'll explain that later, guys, because this is coming up way before the draft comes out. But we didn't take Perry Como. I'm kind of sad about it because I am one of those people who gets so excited when I hear a Perry Como song. There's a joke in a movie with Brandon Fraser called Blast from the Past. And he gets into a car and they're playing Hot Diggity, Dog Diggity. And he does the, he goes,
4: Oh my God, it's Perry Como.
0: And Will turned to me the first time and he was like, Did you write this movie?
1: <laughs> it was a fair question to ask.
3: <laughs> um, and just to kind of set the tone for some things that will come later. There's an interview that that Dino did with Johnny Carson. I think circa late 1970s, probably. And Dino, of course, would would come to have a reputation as a drinker and a womanizer and a gambler. Um, the the part about him being a gambler was a com was a, a complete show. Huh. And he the the reason being he he told Carson was I spent eleven. 11 years as a croupier, those tables in Vegas are not there to be beaten. <laughs> there you they go. So, so, so generally, he would almost have like a small budget um, of a couple hundred bucks. And when he either won a little bit or had blown through it, he just, he just left the casinos later in life. Uh, but ha- having dealt with gambling, he knew that the, the odds are decidedly in the house's favor. It It's true. It's
4: true, yeah.
0: and and then the thing is, we were just talking about this last night because uh, we were talking about maybe possibly doing some investing in the stock market. The way you have to approach Vegas, because I know that you'll never go to Vegas, T, mm-hmm. because that would require getting into one of those giant metal birds that you're so scared of. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but, those things are weird. Yeah, um, but we've been, and the thing is, you need to t- say, okay, this is how much I'm going to spend, and when it's gone, that's it. Yeah. And I like the fact that that could handle that, could actually say, okay,
1: this is what I'm spending and then walk out. Because and not be I, that gamble. I, I will say backing that up, having been to I've been accused of going to Las Vegas a few times. And uh, th- that city is but not you never told me that. <laughs> that city is That's... not designed for you to stick to that strategy. They will do everything they can to pull you away from it.
0: Travis, just just maybe one day we'll go out, we'll like drive out together because mm-hmm. if you sit at a table long enough, you know what they do? They What's that? They give you free liquor.
1: What? What? Yeah, that's, that's not by accident. Think about that for like, a they just, they just What kind of magical goosebumps?
3: happy land is this?
1: <laughs> do
0: they do that in uh, Atlantic City?
1: <laughs> no, in Atlantic City, they just by and punch in the face. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll, I'll get inside. Yeah, if you're at the tables, they do provide you with um, beverages.
3: Uh, well, I'm just going to tell you what, I, what I've always held, LD. If people were meant to fly, then they'd crap on people's windshields. <laughs>
0: um, is it wrong that I might have cracked on someone's windshield?
3: <laughs> if, I was, if I was meant to fly, then then the Lord, good Lord would have had me a-pooping on folks' windshields. <laughs> okay. Uh, by late 1940, uh, Dean had begun singing for Cleveland band leader Sammy Watkins, um, no relation, I don't think, to the Clemson, but I was I was gonna say, <laughs> since his grandparents wouldn't have been born yet, um, <laughs> who suggested that he change his name to Dean Martin, and he took him up on that. He stayed with Watkins there until at least May of 1943. By fall of 1943, he had begun performing in New York. In October of 1941, just to backtrack a little bit, Martin had married a lady named Elizabeth Betty Ann McDonald in Cleveland, Ohio, and the couple had an apartment in Cleveland Heights for a while. They eventually had four children before the marriage ended in 1949. Now, I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information about his first wife, but there's plenty to know about his second wife, that being uh, a lady who went by the name of Jeannie. Born born Dorothy Jean Beeger on March 27th, 1927 in Coral Gables, Florida, she went by Jean when she began modeling in Miami. She was voted Orange Bowl Queen in 1947. A year later... She came to the Beachcomber Club in Miami to see a New Year's Eve show starring Dean Martin and a guy named Jerry Lewis. Oh, man. Hey. Jeannie maintained that she had never heard of either entertainer until that night. She told author Nick Tosius for a 1992 biography of Dean Martin that upon seeing the then-married singer on stage, quote, we locked eyes and I knew we just fell madly in love. Huh. A week after his divorce became final, the two of them wed at the Beverly Hills home of Herman Hover, owner of the famed Hollywood nightclub, Ciro's.
1: Jerry Lewis was his best man. Aww. I think when we're done with the Frank episode, should tally the cumulative marriages of the right <laughs> back.
3: Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well Sam, is
1: Dean, it Dean, Dean's three. Dean's at least Dean's three. three. I think Frank's four, even, I think he's five.
3: It was a lot, yes. Yeah, it was a number of them,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, T. Me and you did good. We're only on our first ones. I mean, <laughs> both both of it. us, right? Yeah, both of us, and and uh, for a substantial amount of time as well. Because you've been married for eleven years, thirteen years, thirteen, 13 years, years.
4: Yeah, and so we're, on,
0: we're on we're on nine, nine. Yep.
1: next year's mm-hmm. ten.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're 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 practically Hollywood weirdos. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, we, need, got, we um, made it more than seven months. I so. need, <laughs> I need
0: right. to divorce you and marry a Kardashian. I think at this point. Good luck
3: with her. Okay. Um, she was the best thing next to me that ever happened to Dean, wrote Derry Lewis in twenty fifteen memoir. Dean, and That's Dean amazing. the two had become one of Hollywood's most photographed couples. Martin retained sole custody of the four children that he had from his first marriage. So uh, he now he that we've custody
1: of the kids despite I mean, his career, he's probably on the road a lot. I mean, he, I know
3: you know, it was hard it was hard to find a lot of information on that. Yeah. It, it's I will say it's always been an oddity for the father to retain sole custody of children, especially when your
1: profession does take you everywhere. I mean, he's a traveling, you know, sure. Yeah,
3: sure. Uh, and I don't know if it's just he had the financial means to support them, and perhaps she didn't, or, or, or what, I, I don't know. But but he and Jeannie became one of the, the most photographed couples in Hollywood. They were kind of an it couple for a while. It's sort of in the golden age of Hollywood, I guess. Now that we've mentioned Lewis, uh, we're going to back up just a couple of years to the beginning of what would become an extraordinary comic partnership. Uh, according to a People magazine story, Lewis, a skinny, goofball, slapstick comedian, was immediately taken by the cool, handsome crooner, Martin, uh, when he first saw him perform at the Glass Hat Nightclub in New York City. Lewis was performing a lip-syncing routine at the time, and when he found himself on the same bill as Martin, again at the Havana Madrid Nightclub in 1946, he made a point of introducing himself. The duo began fooling around with bits at the club after hours, and later, when a singer dropped out of a set at the 500 Club in Atlantic City, Lewis convinced the owner to hire Martin. They performed their first act together that night using the same routines they had practiced earlier at the Havana Madrid. Initially, and surprisingly, their act sucked ass. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that it sucked ass, but it was not well received. Uh, cl- no, no critical acclaim? <laughs> <complaint. laughs> just just wanted to make sure y'all were paying attention. <laughs> the, the club owner, a fellow named Skinny D'Amato, threatened to terminate their contract if the act did not improve. So the two started to move away from pre-scripted uh, gags and began to improvise more.
1: It makes Martin you wonder Sonnen. who uh, Skinny DeMoto's business partners were. I mean, his name was Skinny. I'm assuming <laughs> yeah, it I wasn't wonder, like I on wonder, the level. I wonder who uh, his uh, direct reports were.
3: Fatty <laughs> McGee? Yeah. Chunk, Chunk, Chunky yeah. O'Brien or something. Um, but yeah, he kind of uh, kind of laid down the law that if the two of them didn't improve their act, you know, he would cancel their contract. So they started moving away from pre-scripted gags and started to improvise. Martin would sing, and Lewis, often dressed as a busboy, would drop plates hmm. and make a shambles of the club's decorum. It was kind of seen as a, a bit of a haughty club, and so he's doing a lot of this crazy slapstick stuff where he's dropping dishes. And,
1: oh, hello, ladies!
4: All that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, we were so easily entertained in the past weren't we we sure we sure were we had like uh, stick ball and lawn darts and that right. was fun and now we have to have like downloadable content on your playstation 12 or whatever right you have. it's like
3: okay kids hey kids go outside and play with like a stick <laughs> like, here's a stick and a rock go have a fun <laughs> afternoon
1: yeah Not. No, here's a device that will connect you to everything the human the collective <laughs> yeah. knowledge yeah. of
3: mankind
4: is available via this
1: device. <laughs> <Yeah>. Have fun. <laughs> Play with yeah. Well, remember the one day where we
0: didn't have to go anywhere? I think I, I, I think I was like four or five. And so you had to be like nine or ten. And literally, we were on our house on Cortland Street, and we didn't have to go anywhere. So literally, Mom was like, you could do whatever you want. And we played in dirt. <laughs> yep. That was our entire afternoon was rolling around and you poured dirt in my hair. And it was half hour of just hilarity and fun.
3: Yes. Dirt super, super entertaining stuff on, you know, the mill hill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So that, the the kind of crazy slapsticky performance played much, much better. Essentially Lewis would play the clown causing chaos on stage and Martin always calm and collected, coolly sang his routine. Lewis would later describe the dynamic as, quote, sexy and slapstick. He told people in 1995, I don't think we would have ever been heard of without the other. Uh, Mm. When Jerry and Dean started, it was like an explosion, said Steve Lawrence, a a singer of Stephen Eady fame, for those who who don't know. Um, When these two guys got together and opened at the Copacabana, you would not believe the pandemonium that existed in that club. It just went nuts, <laughs> and you couldn't get to the joint after into the joint after that. They broke every record in the house. He said that Martin and Lewis brought sex appeal to their act that no one had ever seen before in comedy. He said quote, This was the first time there was a comedy act that looked like this. They were very attractive looking guys, and before that you had guys like Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and Olson and Johnson. Then Martin and Lewis came along. And they were just so different than any of those guys. Lewis described their appeal and popularity thusly, quote, Who were Dean's fans? Men, women, the Italians. Who were Jerry's fans? (laughs) Women, Jews, kids. Who were Martin and Lewis fans? All of them. There you go. You had fans that didn't care that Lewis was on or that Martin was singing, because if Dean was singing, that was Martin and Lewis. If Jerry was going nuts, that was also Martin and Lewis. <laughs> so I, I guess that's Jerry's way of explaining that they had a very broad base of of natural fans and and you know kind of a, a big swath of the population that they would appeal to um An NBC radio series, the Martin and Lewis Show, ran from nineteen forty eight to nineteen fifty three The two appeared on the very first Ed Sullivan show, and the first two episodes of the NBC live TV series Welcome aboard. Their own Martin and Lewis TV show debuted in April of nineteen forty nine with special guest that night being Bob Hope. Jeez.
1: Oh, who, who was 81 wow. at the time.
3: <laughs> who was 117 <laughs> in 1949.
0: Yeah, exactly. it was crazy. He was 172. Um,
3: the program actually garnered tepid reviews, believe it or not, so Lewis hired a couple of young up-and-coming comedy writers to help improve the show. One was a guy named Ed Simmons. The other fellow you might have heard of, his name was Norman Lear. Oh.
1: oh. He's a popular guy.
3: Mm-hmm. He was the absolute Mac daddy of like seventies and eighties sitcoms in the seventies and, and 1980s. But he, he got his start in 1949 writing for um, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. Nice. Um, the two made their film debut uh, debut in the 1949 release, my friend Irma based on a recurring sketch from the radio show. Originally Lewis was to play the character Al, but the studio felt that the part was wrong for him after seeing a screen test. Worried that he would be left out of the film entirely and that the duo's formula of, quote, handsome guy with a monkey would be altered, he quickly quickly conceived of a sidekick to Martin's character named Seymour that was written into the script. He called that one of the big turning points of his career. A sequel was also produced, the only sequel that Martin Lewis would ever be involved in. My Friend Irma Goes West was a big box office hit Making a then huge sum of two point four million dollars at the box office. <laughs> um, a New York Times review is painted that, a picture. Is that like
0: two point five million? Was that in that year's nineteen forty nine?
3: Yeah.
0: Holy So cow. that's not
3: that's not adjusted for inflation or anything.
0: That is crazy. That is crazy. That is a ridiculous amount of money. Okay. Because
3: probably it cost what about a nickel or a dime to go to a movie theater back then? Probably.
0: Nickelodeon was the term. Yeah. Right? Well, no, 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 yeah. no, no. That's that's. Uh, that's like, that's Victorian era, honey. Well, Nickelodeon is literally Jack Dawson in the movie Titanic, says I saw well, that
1: once in a Nickelodeon. What does that cost? It's probably not.
3: It probably cost a few cents to get in, and the other thing you had to think about back then is there were a lot of places that did not have movie theaters, So, and going to the theater was kind of a, a, a big deal night out for folks, but there's oh, big yeah. swaths like that's, of That's rural, like the rural, big thing
0: was people would actually wear dresses, fix their hair, do their makeup...
3: Like they were going to church. It It was was like going to church on Sunday. Sure. Yeah. Um, But there were big swaths of of rural America that did not have movie theaters. So it was $2.4 million. Now you go, oh God, what? But at the time, that was probably astounding. It was probably an astronomical sum, I would guess.
0: I'm going to look this up really quick. What year is this?
3: 1949.
0: Okay. 1949, the average ticket cost was 46 cents. 46 cents. Okay. And the top grossing movie of that year was Samson and Delilah. Adjusted for inflation, it would be $4.69, according to Google.
3: Okay. So it made a lot of money. I think that's the point we're trying to (laughs) make. Yeah, it made a lot of (laughs) money. It was a big hit. Uh, A New York York Times review painted a picture of a packed theater with a crowd laughing so raucously that it was difficult for the reviewer to actually hear the dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) So they went and reviewed a movie that they – couldn't understand or hear, is what it sounds like. Uh, In 1950, the two released a movie called At War with the Army. When Martin and Lewis signed with Paramount Pictures, they were allowed to make a film per year outside the studio through their own production company, which they called York Productions. This was one of the movies that they made for a very meager salary, but it was outside the studio, so they were allowed to reap 90% of the film's profits. Ooh, wow. Once it came out and made a then-large $3.3 million, the two ended up in a protracted legal battle over the film for some reason. Uh, After several years, they relinquished all financial interest in the picture in exchange for never having to make any more outside-the-studio pictures ever again. So they they didn't want to do that anymore because it ended up being such a big legal hassle for whatever reason. The film's copyright was not registered until 1951. And it was eventually allowed to lapse into public domain. Because of that, over a dozen different companies have released home videos or DVD versions of At War with the Army. Uh, it is worth noting that nearly, <laughs> this doesn't really have anything to do with Dean so much, more, it's more Jerry Lewis. It's worth noting that nearly 1.5 million people in France watched that movie upon its release. That would encompass a, a, a pretty big percentage of the country's population of less than 40 million people at the time beginning the country's very odd and very long obsession with Jerry Lewis. It's just like the
0: David Hasselhoff of his
1: time. K- kind of, yeah. <laughs> that might be my favorite part of this whole thing so far. Their long and confusing obsession with Jerry Lewis. The, the, the French
3: loved <laughs> yeah. Jerry Lewis. Clearly.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> um,
3: each of their first five films made more money than its predecessor, and all 17 releases that the two starred in together were hits and they were America's highest-paid entertainers at the time, according to a 1951 Life magazine article. They were so popular that fans would often refuse to leave their seats once live shows ended. So the two would continue doing performances from fire escape exits and their dressing rooms. They would <laughs> so from their dressing rooms and fire exits. They would continue to shout, like, dialogue and one-liners and back and forth for their, for their fans who would just do, like, yeah, we're not leaving. They would, just, they, just <laughs> wouldn't leave their, they would not leave their seats. That's hilarious. Those 17 films came out over the course of just eight years. 17 films? Yep. So, so just over two, two movies a year. Perhaps that pace, coupled with ongoing tours, their radio show, and their TV show began to take its toll.
0: What are they trying to do? Well,
3: Be me? <laughs> Have right. a free job? Martin was reportedly growing tired of scripts, casting him as, quote, a colorless romantic lead, while much of the film centered on the annex of Lewis. Look Magazine did not help when they gave Martin and Lewis a cover photo and cropped Martin out of the picture, which I call the old Stefani.
1: <laughs> oh, wow.
3: Not that it was Gwen's fault, I'm just saying.
1: Many reviews If you guys what don't I know th- what
0: that means, go back and watch the music video for Don't Speak. Don't right. Speak
3: or look at the or look at the cover of Spin magazine from about nineteen ninety five ish or whenever that was
0: because that's that's so um, much easier than just going to YouTube.
3: <laughs> right. Many reviewers would often cite Martin as a solid straight man, but heaped praise on Lewis, and they would seem to indicate that he could be a success with any partner. Now, uh, LD, you are uh, are the most experienced when it comes to acting uh, of of the three of us. Well, thank you. Uh, Will the thrill and I have very little uh, limited experience. You actually studied it, and that was your
1: profession for a long time. She's the authority.
3: <laughs> so, so my, so no. What I'm wondering here is how difficult is it to just be the straight man all the time?
0: Um. Well, it okay. So to be the straight man can not be that that, harder. I mean, that
3: first, first of all, it's not that like that doesn't require talent.
0: Oh yeah. To but to be the straight man, you still have to be able to deliver your lines in a humorous manner while understanding that you are not going to be the complete, because look at George Burns and Gracie Allen. George Burns was the straight man. Gracie was the one that was off the rails. And we look at the two of them and they're a great pairing, but I think it's just as hard to be the straight man as it is to be the wackadoo, because you have to kind of do it backwards and it heels, You have to do it in a straight-laced manner without cracking. And that can yeah. be really hard.
1: And I think it also depends on the the other party, because, you know, comedy is, a lot of it's based in subverting expectations. So I think as a straight man, your responsibility is to set the expectation, which aligns with where the audience thinks things are going, and then the wackadoo takes it, you know, out of that. So I and think that- it's a fine line.
3: And then, but then how, okay, so that that's the actual delivery part of it. If you're never the one that's getting the laughs, how hard is that? It,
0: it can, I, I think it can be rough, but I feel like if you're a really good, effective straight man, like, did you ever watch that 70s show?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely, all the time. Okay, yeah.
0: so Red was the straight man, and Kitty was your, your 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 wacky sidekick, and I feel like they both shared the the laugh track. Like, I feel like it was... If you do it effectively, being that straight man can get you a lot of laughs. I'd say Jason Bateman in Arrested Development. I don't think. Poster boy for that. I don't think T would ever know that show. Can Can you see that though? I yes, I can kind of see it. It, But you have to be the one that is. You have to be the Buster Keaton in the doorframe. Like the house is falling down around you, and you have to remain stable. So it can be tough, but people did laugh.
3: But but partly because you know, of things like uh, that magazine cropping Dean Martin's picture out <laughs> and just running one of Lewis and of reviewers saying, oh, yeah, he's a solid straight man. But, I mean, Lewis is the real talent of this outfit. That kind of started to, to wear on Martin a little bit. He, he did fulfill the rest of his contract, but the two were now frequently arguing. At one point uh, during an argument, Martin um, apparently yelled at Lewis, quote, you're nothing to me but a... F- dollar sign ow yeah very ouch how do you really
0: feel Dean? <laughs> okay well uh yeah. speaking of dollar signs i believe that it's time for us to take a short break so that we can see some dollar signs with dollar, uh, some, dollar bills, with uh, some of our sponsors so check those out <laughs> we'll be right back all right and we're back hopping back into dino the dean martin the dean man the dean show making it's
3: the wonderful Dean Show, the amazing Dean Show. <laughs> Making copies. Just go ahead. And you know you to. I felt in it coming. It was so close.
4: It was right there. Yeah. Um, so, so when
3: last we left you, <laughs> Martin and Lewis refuting to the point that Martin had said to him, quote, You're nothing but a, a an effing dollar sign to me. The two did stage a farewell show at the Copa Gabbana Club on July 25th, 1956, exactly 10 years to the day since they had first teamed up on stage. The two would not speak to one another for 20 years. Cheese and crackers. Wow. And would not establish a real relationship again for 10 years beyond that. And I, and I want you to think about the fact that they were so close at one point that Jerry Lewis was the best man at Dean Martin's wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this this was, and it's so long ago that it's, it's probably a lot of people forget about it. We're talking about one of the, the most popular Comedy group duos in the history of the of of comedy, yeah, yeah. Time. yeah. they were yes, they were mammothly successful.
0: So much um, so that even Quentin Tarantino mentioned their names as a way to get a milkshake in Pulp Fiction in
3: 1994. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but they wouldn't talk to one another, not not, I mean, literally, they would not speak to one another for for 20 years and wouldn't have a relationship uh, really for about 30 after this. Wow, um. Throughout his run with Lewis, Martin was developing his signature crooning singing style, and after releasing several singles in the late 40s and early 50s, it, it, which included one top 10 hit called "Powder Your Face with Sunshine," he actually released his first album, <laughs> Dean it Martin. Sounds like Sings. a euphemism
0: for cocaine. Yeah, not, not a subtle yeah, one do, either.
3: Doesn't it? Doesn't <laughs> it? It's, it's, it's right up there with chasing the white snake. I mean, <laughs> Wait, is that rails, where they get their the names? Two, fat rails of toot
0: wait is that where white snake got their name
3: uh no that means something else okay got it thank you (laughs) moving on you got it all right are you okay (laughs) let's just move along um he actually released his first album dean martin sings in 1953 The album was recorded in two sessions in one evening in November of 1952, and seven of the eight songs were featured in the Martin and Lewis movie, The Stooge. One of those songs that ended up on an extended 12-inch version of the album, and 12 inches would equate to a couple of White Snakes, if you didn't pick up what it meant earlier, (laughs) was That's Amore, Uh, which would be the third highest charting hit of Martin's career reaching number 2 on the Billboard singles chart and it, I would say that's arguably his signature song and we're going to I would argue there's
1: this.
3: one above it. My, yeah, right and we will get to that. Okay, now. we're going there. Uh, okay. And are going we're going to hear we're going to listen to that in just a second but just a little more background it appeared on the soundtrack for the Martin and Lewis film The Caddy. It was actually Lewis who commissioned Harry Warren and Jack Brooks to write the song along with some others for Martin in the hopes that it would be a hit for his friend. Music critic uh, Joe Quinnan described the song as quote, a charming if goofy parody of popular Neapolitan organ grinder music, <laughs> and observed and observed that it was one of many songs from the early fifties, quote, that helped rehabilitate Italy's image as a land of magic and romance that had somehow been lured from its festive moorings by the glum fascist Benito Mussolini. So basically, he's saying like it kind of reminded everybody that Italy was a fun place, unlike that Mussolini guy who was a complete square. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how that. Kind of, I mean, that that fascist dictator guy that killed a few million people. I mean,
1: yeah, that that, that clown. What a
3: square, Daddy O. We we buzz
1: buzzkill there, Moosey.
3: Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I, I, I think maybe this is uh, a good time to, to have our first musical interlude of the episode. So, LD, if you're ready, we'll, we'll listen to uh, Dean Martin sing for the first time. This is one of, one of the biggest hits of his career and one of his big signature songs. That's Amore.
0: Here we go. In Napoli, when love is
5: king, when boy meets girl, Bells will ring, tingle a tingle And you'll sing beat the bell Hearts will play, tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay Like a guitar and a When the stars make you drool Just like a pastiff as at When
2: the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore,
5: that's amore. Bells will ring, ting-a-ling-a-ling, ting a and you sing Vita Bella, Vita Bella. Like oh, that's amore, that's
4: amore,
5: when you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love, when you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, senor. I just see back in
3: old Napoli, that's amore. Amore, that's amore. all right so there was Dino with um i I would say well the thrill one of one of his biggest hits and, and biggest signature songs
1: that's morning top three yeah
0: and it's so yeah. it's 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 really kitschy, but it's now inextricably linked with the, the Italian sound. Like now that when you watch like films or TV, does it like take place in Italy? Like that's the kind of sound that they reach for. Well,
1: again, think what, what year is this TJ?
3: Uh, gosh, we're in the, the early to mid fifties at this point, I think.
1: Right. So again, we're coming out of the second world war where Italy was an Axis power. Uh, right. You know, I think it's kind of the glum, the glum <laughs> fascist. Yeah, exactly, those party-pooping fascists. But yeah, I think, you know, to the point you made, they were trying to get back to, hey, let's let's see what made our country great in the first place. You know, it wasn't that Benito Mussolini guy. Party-pooping fascist (laughs) is now my new band name.
3: It is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. The party-pooping fascist. It gets better with the British accent. (laughs) The party-pooping fascist. Um, So Dino recorded 12 albums over a 10-year stretch from 1953 to 1963 with three of those making the Billboard Hot 100 album chart. Scott doesn't His do anything to... in moderation, does he? No, no. And, and this this is, see, this is the thing. He was involved in every aspect of entertainment at the time. He was on radio. Mm-hmm. He was on TV. He did movies. He was a singer. Um, for God's sakes, he was a prize fighter for a little while, so you could throw athletics into it. <laughs> um, but he pretty much touched every base of entertainment that there was at this point. He was, he was at this point in time, He and and people like uh, Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis and some others, this is one of the biggest stars in the world in every respect at this time. His 1964 release, Dream with Dean, actually reached number 15 on the charts and was certified gold. It contained his second number one hit, Everybody Loves Somebody, which followed 1955, Memories Are Made of This. Uh, That album received mostly positive reviews. All music's Joe Viglione gave the album three out of five stars and said the only drawback was that the 12 songs, quote, are incessant and they're providing the same atmosphere. But he did mm-hmm. note that the album showed what a tremendous vocalist Martin was. He said he performed as if, quote, he were a lounge singer at one fifteen a.m. and the Saturday night crowd was beginning to dwindle. Um, so, <laughs> that's he, he's <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's uh, damning with faint praise, I think, but, um, So we've even though we just heard that's amore. I think you know what we we've been talking for a while. We haven't played a lot of music. Let's hear another Dean song. Uh, Let's have everybody loves somebody. This was his second and I believe his final number one chart hit. Here we go.
5: somehow Something in your kiss just told me my sometime is now Everybody find somebody someplace There's no telling where love may appear Something in my heart Keep saying Find some place Is here If I had it in my power I'd arrange for every girl To have your charm Then every minute Every hour Every boy would
4: Oh, that's
3: a good song. Where where would you guys put that in your pantheon of Dean Martin songs?
1: Oh, uh, see, I, I feel like we already have a different list going, but I don't want to pull away from any of the songs you might have coming up. You mm-hmm. uh, got a kick in the head is
0: probably my favorite. Uh,
1: we will we will be getting there. Uh, you're yeah. nobody till somebody loves you.
3: I mean, right? Huge one. Uh, that's another huge one. Sure. He would continue to release albums, none of which would reach gold status. Up until the early 1980s, actually. So he started his recording career in the 40s, and it would actually go into the uh, early 1980s.
1: Unbelievable.
3: <laughs> Interestingly, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the last of those albums was 1983's The Nashville Session, which consisted of country standards. Oh my. It, included, it included, quote, my first country song, a duet with Conway Twitty, Uh, Or as I like to refer to him, Cousin Conway, Harold (laughs) Boyd Jenkins, um, that uh, actually reached the country top 40. He also did a duet with Merle Haggard on that one on a cover of Everybody's Had the Blues, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, Aside from Martin and Lewis, there was obviously another famous group with which Dean Martin was associated, that being the famous and infamous, which means very famous, according to the Three Amigos, Rat Pack. Oh, yes. What? Rat Pack, you speak of. Uh, Martin's association with Frank Sinatra actually dates back to at least 1944 (laughs) when Martin would serve as a sometime replacement for the chairman performing at the Rohamamba nightclub. (laughs) I'm just stabbing in the dark here. It was was a good try. Good try. That's at at Blah Blah nightclub in New York. Uh, Now, according to one story I read, Frank liked Martin immediately and actually offered to help him with his singing career. And though Martin sincerely appreciated the offer, he said he wanted to try to make it on his own. Uh, The two would eventually grow to consider one another brothers, however, going so far as to wearing matching pinky rings. Hmm. Martin, Martin reportedly never took his off. They formed the core of the Rat Pack along with Sammy Davis Jr., who you recently did an episode on joey bishop and peter lawford the group had a reputation for carousing gambling and drinking but according to a story in the desert sun the big drinking womanizing character that martin often portrayed was somewhat of an act he was usually the first to to tap out on long nights of partying usually opting to go home and spend time with his family sleep in and get in an early round of golf the next day
0: huh. i love that it was uh, all he, an
3: act. he was also a devout catholic who who uh, reportedly prayed very regularly and he was a little bit shy. And even once he became a, a big star and had had a lot of success, he was still a little bit self-conscious about his accent and the way he spoke, believe it or not. Huh. So he was not, he was actually, uh, uh, probably the meekest partier of the the Rat Pack, despite the image he portrayed, which completely played that up. He,
1: he was the polar opposite of Frank. <laughs> And Sammy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those guys and, practice and what, what
3: they preach. Yes, odd, odd then that he was, so, he was such very, very good friends with both of them. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of facts about the Rat Pack and and some of these, and I'm going to apologize to everybody. LD and, and Will the Thrill have just done a two-part Episode on Sammy Davis Jr. Just because of some wacky work stuff that I'm not going to go into right now. I haven't had a chance to fully listen to to the two part episode, so th- this may be some ground they've covered already. But you know what? It's it's a story so nice. I'm just going to tell it
4: twice. If that's <laughs> right.
3: I, I'm sure you you may have covered this that. The, the group that we just spoke of with Sammy and Dino and Peter and all those guys was not Shirley the first Shirley McLean.
0: let's, please, please, let's, let's also include Shirley McLean in this because she was the only female member of the Rat Pack and she don't get her due. Well, she and she Bogey were like the first range. generation,
1: right? No, and, she, and no Paul,
0: Shirley was the second.
1: And and
3: Paul Anka was actually considered sort of a newbie member or something a little later. Yeah. But, but the Rat Pack, as we know it, was not the first Rat Pack.
0: Yep. Yep. Bogey and Bacall.
3: You had the the is it Humbry Hills Rat Pack? Mm-hmm. Uh, hum- Humble the 19- Hills.
0: Hum- Humble okay. Hills.
3: That that may be it. Yeah. This, this is, uh, also because of the whole wacky work um, situation I just spoke of. Google Chester, South Carolina, if you want to know what I've been doing for the last few days. <laughs> 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 because I'm I'm pretty sure it'll pop up. That's uh, the the freaking San Francisco Chronicle carried a story about it. Uh, oh man! <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's just say, let's just say, uh, TJ has been living Breaking Bad for a couple days.
3: <laughs> yep, I've been Breaking Bad since about Thursday morning. So anyway, so the, the the first incarnation was actually in the 1940s, and it was comprised of Humphrey Bogart, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Sid Luft. David Ninn, and his wife, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Bogart took Sinatra under his wing, and the chairman enjoyed the group camaraderie quite a bit, actually. Uh, They hung out primarily in California, but they did make their way to Las Vegas for parties and nights out. The name the Rat Pack was supposedly coined by Lauren Bacall, who, of course, Humphrey Bogart was was married to uh, for a while. They met on the set of To Have and Have Not in 1944 and quickly began a you know, relationship despite a 25-year age difference and the fact that Bogart was married at the time. They eventually got married. She sort of became the den mother of the group, and after Bogart, Sinatra and some of the others returned home after a very long night of partying and drinking, she supposedly mm-hmm. said, quote, "You look like a GD rat pack." <laughs> the yep, name stuck, and then the group designed a coat of arms actually. I don't know if you all have seen that, but Google it if you haven't. It's pretty cool. Uh, they established a coat of arms for the Rat Pack and a motto, never rat on a rat,
4: hmm. huh.
3: which is which is kind of, you could look at it as uh, the nexus of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, sort of, Yeah, since so much of their partying took place there. Now, by now, you may be saying, hey, that's a cool story, TJ, but what in the hell does that have to do with Dean Martin? <laughs> well, uh, Bogart, of course, passed away in 1957, and the original incarnation of the group fell by the wayside. Sinatra missed the group dynamic, so he reached out to his friend, Dean Martin, with whom he had recently co-starred in a a movie, and then he sort of brought Sammy Davis Jr. into the pack, and then Peter Lawford, and then Joey Bishop rounded out the the five, so that's actually kind of where it started. Uh, The group itself apparently didn't actually like the name The Rat Pack, with Sinatra once telling a reporter who used the phrase to his face, quote, that is a stupid ass phrase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they considered going with the summit or the clan, but Frank balked at the latter because of its association with racist hood wearing pecker hands.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say why choice. <laughs> Which is not something
3: that Frank was really interested in being associated with.
1: I mean, fair. Or,
3: or any or, or anybody would be.
1: Thank God good taste prevailed.
3: Right. Sinatra had custom made bathrobes made for every member of the Rat Pack during a stay at the Sands Health Club. Nicknames were embossed on the backs of all of them. Martin's just said Dino <laughs> <laughs> Paul Anka, who was sort of considered a Rat Pack newbie or um, sort of an understudy, his said the kid. (laughs) Sammy said, "Hang on, hang on,
0: Smokey or Shadow."
3: Sammy said, "Smokey the Bear" on it. Smokey the Bear. Smokey the Bear. Bear. Yeah, and Sinatra's and Sinatra's carried the title the Pope,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is weird because he's known as the Chairman, right? Mm -hmm.
3: Chairman of the Board. Yeah, well, but I think if Frank wanted to be called the Pope, then you called him the Pope. I mean, Pretty I'm not allowed yeah. to tell Frank Sinatra what he's.
0: There's he's that doing. great, I, I know we'll probably cover it in, it's going to be the picture that we use for the first oh, yeah, episode. But yes. so like, yep. have you ever seen the meme that says, you might be cool, but you'll never be Frank Sinatra getting out of a helicopter with a bourbon in his hand cool? And it's got the picture
1: to back it up. And, and, and it's true. Yeah. You, know, you see that, you're just like, yep, I'm checkmate. Yep. <laughs> yes.
3: Yep. Yep. yep, Frank's cooler than me. I, yep. I, I, I'm not one to fight failure, y'all.
1: Yep, I, I concede. <laughs>
3: okay, so just a, a little more information on the Rat Pack. Most of the Rat Pack appeared at John F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential inauguration. Except mm-hmm.
0: Sammy
3: Davis Jr. Uh, right, and we're, and we're going to get to that. Uh, Sinatra was connected to the Kennedys and a certain other organization that I don't think I need to mention <laughs> that JFK also had some dealings with and Lawford had actually married into the famous family. Sammy Davis Jr., though, had recently married a Swedish model, and interracial marriage was actually still illegal in many states at that point. To avoid backlash, Sammy was not invited to perform. Now, Dean Martin chose not to come to the uh, inaugural either. And it's not really known whether it's because he just wasn't a fan of Kennedy's or if it was to show solidarity with his, his friend Sammy Davis Jr. But it was probably – it was one of the two. It's it's not something I could I could find much information on definitively one way or the other. But either he just wasn't totally sold on Kennedy or he didn't like the way that his, his friend was treated. To show how popular the Rat Pack was, though, in one week, the group drew 34,000 people to the sands. Jeez. Now – 30, Thirty-four thousand
0: people. I'm trying to think.
3: In a week. In a week. That's so cool. to to a ballroom in a hotel, basically. So I a boy, they had to do a lot of shows a day, and B they were packed to the absolute freaking gills every time. They had to have been. Yeah. Because you're <laughs> talking about you're not talking about a, a big auditor like a giant auditorium or a basketball arena or something. I mean it's 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 like a a theater inside of a casino.
0: Okay. Now. We haven't been to a a ton of shows in Vegas, but we did go see Garth Brooks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we saw him at the Win. And when we saw him, there were maybe what a thousand people.
1: No, it was much smaller. That was maybe five hundred. You think so? Oh, yeah, it was a small theater. Yeah.
0: And and from what I understand, that's about the average for like if you think of like a ballroom, think about like a convention. Yeah. How many people can you sit in there? Like maybe two thousand tops.
4: Yeah, like folding well, it, chairs.
3: You're talking about they obviously would have to have done two or three shows a day, and yeah. every one of them would have had to have been sold probably beyond actual capacity. I, I just I did
1: the it. math on this. Uh, if that theater we saw Garth in any indication, I ballparked it at 600 people. For that amount of traffic, they would have to do 68 shows in a week,
3: oh which is not God. which is not feasible. I mean, you you can, right. I mean, they can't. So, they, they couldn't have done eight. Not, they couldn't have done nine shows a day.
1: Correct. Yeah, that would not be possible.
3: Right. Sure. Um, so the th- it was obviously a little bit, a little bit of a bigger room, but a lot of shows and packed to the gills every time they played.
1: Yeah, people swinging from the rafters, um, basically. Uh, Martin
3: was actually a fan favorite, and he apparently evoked both shock and laughter from those thirty-four thousand people over the course of a week by starting one of his sets by saying, "So, let me tell you about some of the good things the mob is doing." <laughs> Uh, um, when any Rat Pack member performed at the Copa Room in the Sands, the marquee would often tease that others might show up, so it would say things like "Performing tonight, Dean Martin, and maybe Frank, and maybe Sammy. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Because they would often just show up at others at, at the other shows and 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 perform. And it was a a, a very a pretty unique camaraderie that 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 group had. Uh, in 1998, Joey Bishop revealed that he never once saw a single member of the Rat Pack perform drunk, which is hard as that is to believe. He says that a a lot of times it was part of the act, but every one of them took their duties as a performer very seriously and would not have ever been drunk on stage.
1: No, I I could see that based on their commitment to the performance. I mean, afterwards, yeah, all bets were off. But, yeah, yeah, no, I I could see that. Sinatra
3: would arrange for there to be sex parties in steam rooms at the health clubs inside of the casinos again who's surprised
0: (laughs) and you can go to adamandeve.com and put in the (laughs) discount code rrheaven and get 50 percent off almost any item
3: you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) the rat pack performed only one televised concert ever that took place on june 20th 1965 Really, it, uh, featured Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin. Uh, I believe that Bishop was supposed to be at, sort of an MC and and kind of participant in the event, but he had some back trouble and wasn't able to. So at the le- last second, they called um, this guy named Johnny Carson and said, "Hey, uh, how about come MC for us?" And he uh, did it.
4: Oh, that
0: guy will never amount to anything.
3: No, a, a little all right, like a little footnote in history. This yeah. Johnny Carson guy. Um, it was uh, shown in cinemas across the country, so I guess that would have kind of been like, like like an old closed circuit kind of a thing, maybe. Uh,
0: well, I mean, we 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 went. To, oh God, it's Fathom Events. Fathom Events now does this where they'll do like Broadway shows. They will record a concert or a Broadway show, and then they'll show it in the movie theaters now. So this is like not a thing that's unheard of. But, like also, they're they're for Broadway shows. It's like pro shots. So eventually they will come out on DVD. Uh, Pro Shot just uh, dropped at Hamilton. So it's not a complete shocker that that would happen. It's also a great way to, you know, get more revenue from something that's extremely popular that you might not have access to.
3: Okay. Uh, Just to kind of continue with some of these sort of little bullet points I have about the Rat Pack. Often, uh, just for fun, when he was in Las Vegas, Dean Martin would deal blackjack.
0: Hmm. That had to be a hell of a table to work up going to. Going back to his roots, which,
3: which he had done when he was younger. You know, he was a croupier, he was a stick man, he was a dealer. He uh, did a lot of that in his in his younger days. Um, uh, another little bullet point: the Rat Pack once ordered 300 Bloody Marys from room service during the course of a single event.
1: <laughs> that is
3: fantastic.
4: What? How do you even drink that much?
3: Well, that, that would be about not, sixty. That would be about sixty Bloody Marys for each of the five members. I, I'm guessing they had help, but
4: the I ice mean,
3: would melt. Say, sure, surely they were ordering a lot of them for friends and for other people. And I don't want to think they drank sixty Bloody Marys a piece, largely because they <laughs> continued to live. <laughs>
1: yes, they were not carted off to the hospital after that.
3: Right. Uh, they didn't all die of alcohol poisoning that evening. But yeah, three hundred in the course of a single of of one single performance
6: um
3: the last film obviously they did a lot of movies together the rat pack but the last film to feature all five members of the rat pack was sergeants three Hmm. all were to have appeared in robin and the seven hoods but lawford was purged from the fraternity just before filming began for political reasons fair enough I'm imagining that might come up in the Frank Sinatra episode because I think it was Frank who sort of ejected him. So I'm not going to
1: dig. If anyone's going to have the final say, it's going to be the Pope.
3: Right. And it it was, not to get too mixed up in it, but basically JFK kind of cut off ties with the Rat Pack for political reasons. We're going to get to that. (laughs) he He replaced them on a bill with Bing Crosby. Uh, who was oddly a very staunch Republican, but they put him on there anyway, even though he was a Democrat. And there are some other and forces at, at work. There are a lot of things time. going yeah. on, but Frank Frank was pissed, and he was pretty much like, Lawford, you're gone. And that was it, because he was married into the Kennedy family, so he just <laughs> sort of evicted him. But, they so he they was, really
0: liked naming movies after numbers, because you had Ocean's Eleven,
3: yep, Sergeant's Three, three. Four yep.
0: for Texas, Robin yep. and the Seven Hoods. Correct. One more time, and then yep. Cannonball Run. run. Um, <laughs> cannonball. cannonball Run.
3: No, wait, wait, hold on. Cannonball Run two. Two. yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, and uh now that had the had Burt Reynolds in it, right?
1: Oh, uh, Yes. Yes. It yes. Did. The late Burt yes. Reynolds. Well, he was buddies with uh
3: Sinatra. Yes, he was. He and Sinatra were yep. pretty tight, actually. Well, yeah, we were um, so, born
0: in the wrong era,
3: dude. We uh, so I totally, yes. Ugh, other than man. other than the fact that we would be really really old right now, otherwise it would be re- that would have been so awesome. Yeah. Um, some combination of Rat Pack members appeared in 21 films together. The first being it happened in Brooklyn in 1947 and the last being Cannonball Run 2 in 1984, which you just mentioned. Um, those featuring Martin included She Came Running in 1958. Anna LaCosta, the original Ocean's Eleven in 1960, Pepe in 1962, The Road to Hong Kong in 1962, Come Blow Your Horn in 1963, Four for Texas in 1963, Robin and the Seven Hoods in 1964, Marriage on the Rocks in 1965, Texas Across the River in 1966, and Cannonball Run 2, although I don't really consider that a, quote, Rat Pack movie. There were three members of it in that movie, members of the Rat Pack often appeared on one another's albums. Although oddly, uh, on, there are only a couple of compilation albums done later on that featured all of them. Which you would, which is funny, you would think since three of the five were popular singers, they would have done you know more work together. But they didn't do a ton there was a sort of there's a couple of compilation albums that I think Rhino Records put out much later that you could pick up. But that I think that was about it actually. The Rat Pack was good for Martin's career. That's something else that we need to point out. As the rock era began in the late 1950s, the popularity of crooners began to wane. It's also worth noting that the first movie in which Martin was supposed to be sort of the the star, it was sort of his vehicle to carry, was uh, was a a 1957 movie that was considered a complete commercial disappointment. (laughs) So the, the the Rat Pack sort of revived his and and a couple of the members' um, stature as uh, movie stars and singers. It wasn't just like a bunch of guys like doing coke and you know and chasing and and chasing ladies. They actually <laughs> it, there, there were there were career benefits for, for all of them it, it, from 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 everything I've read. It's also not uh, much of a stretch to say that the Rat Pack sort of solidified the reputation of Las Vegas as a place to be. Uh, Absolutely, because they, I mean, like it, right.
0: it. It now it's now it's you know completely shut down. But if you get if you got a residence in Vegas before, that actually like really meant something because you you had to think, okay, if that's where you know, Frank and Dean and Sammy are, this is a happening place because they were like the epitome of cool when they broke out. Right. And now you have people like Britney Spears and Celine Dion who have residencies. So to get those residencies, you have to have that prestige.
3: Sure. So,
0: yeah, I absolutely believe it. And when you think of Vegas, but, you think of the Rat Pack.
3: Right. And and you also, but it also sold that as a, a place for sort of, Ultimate hedonism—why you 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 can just drink and smoke and you know uh, just just chase after love and gamble and do all this stuff—and and I don't know that it it had that big a reputation of that up until that point. I mean, it was a place you could go gamble, but they kind of made it cool, really. Uh, and the other thing is. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that his affiliation with the Rat Pack helped JFK in his presidential election.
0: Absolutely. Well, Frank recorded High Hopes. We talked about this in the last episode. He recorded a song for Jack Kennedy's run. So, yeah, (laughs) I feel like, yeah, that's an accurate statement.
3: And, of course, he he appeared at um, JFK's inaugural. He would not appear at another inaugural until, you know, Bill Clinton, no
0: Ronald Reagan.
3: Ronald Reagan. Yeah, we'd be happy Reagan. Yeah. Sure did, and in, in 1981, he absolutely did.
0: I was trying to think, whose political ideals kind of would have won with him at that age?
3: Yeah, but well, he was uh, apparently he was um, a, a fan of of President Reagan, so he he did appear at that one. But probably the most famous and popular film that came out of the Rat Pack was Ocean's Eleven. Apparently, the group had such a great rapport. That they often went off script and they ad-libbed. They, 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 those guys had such a good relationship and such good chemistry. They were naturally funnier than what was written down on the page for them to say. So <laughs> a lot of times they would just they would just say whatever and it would it would work. So they just they it, it would end up in the movie. Um, there was a soundtrack uh, to that movie That's as it. as there is to most movies, and I think this is a a, a good time to go back to uh, hear some more music from dean martin i would say probably the the, my favorite song from the the original oceans 11 song soundtrack was one by dean called ain't that a kick in the head it's a good one this is this is is the one that uh, ld had had mentioned as being one of her favorites so let's 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 just listen to it now this is
4: the great dean martin from the oceans 11 soundtrack with ain't that a kick in the head (laughs) <laughs> All right. I love that song so much. It's just so happy. <laughs> uh,
3: there's one thing um, I, I want to mention here. Well, there's a couple of things. One, I, and you mention this pretty much every week, LD. When we're dealing with somebody who has as long a career as Dean Martin, anything we can tell you is, is scratching the surface. So please go read about them. Go listen to their music. Go watch their old TV shows and stuff. The other is that because of uh, some of the wacky st- stuff I've had to do associated with my job the last few days. Most of my notes on this are handwritten. So if I'm stumbling here and there, it's because my handwriting looks like a monkey flinging poop at a big white sheet. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty much what, whoa, what my handwriting whoa, is. is.
0: that any different than it normally is?
3: Uh, no, no. I'm just telling you that that's what my handwriting looks like. So I, I mean, have, we, it's, we it's, me and and you to collectively
0: part. have the worst handwriting <laughs> of, of any family ever
3: uh ld's is horrible and mine is worse i think she'll admit that
0: <laughs> really you think mine's better than yours
3: yeah yeah oh yeah <laughs> right. mm-hmm. we
0: are in a sorry state
3: we are so anyway if, if if i'm stumbling here and there it's it's either the amount of chatterbox i've consumed or the fact that i can't read my own handwriting but it's one of those <laughs> two <laughs> or, or or a combination of both Who, who's to say um uh in the mid-1960s Martin launched a weekly comedy TV series on NBC called The Dean Martin Show, which ran for 264 episodes and until 1974. Initially, Martin was reluctant to take on the project, believing that it would cut into his um, ability to do films and club performances. So basically what he thought is, I'm just going to make them the most ridiculous offer I can think of so that they'll say no and I won't have to do this. So basically he said, um, uh, I, I want this, re- he incited some ridiculous, th- what was in his mind an outlandish salary. And he said, I will only show up on the day of filming. I will not participate in any rehearsals of any kind, no writing sessions. Basically when the show tapes, I will show up and you're going to pay me a sh- ridiculous amount of money to do it. Much to his amazement, NBC still said yes. <laughs> Oh, my um, man. To which, So supposedly he went home to his family at that point and said, quote, they went for it, so now I have to do this TV show.
4: <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> on, the show,
3: on the show, he kept up the appearance of being a, a boozing crooner, but the signature cocktail glass that he always held in his hand on the show was generally filled with apple juice and nothing else.
0: <laughs> okay, because yeah, I always heard it was tea.
3: Right. Uh, on that show, apparently it was, it was often apple juice, but sometimes it was tea. Yeah. yeah. Which, which if in, in a clear glass looks like bourbon or whiskey. But sure, sure.
0: That's what they use on set. Like that's when, 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 when you have to do like a bar scene or a drinking scene, you have either sparkling cider or apple juice. So that makes
3: yeah. sense. Right. But so when, when he did the Dean Martin TV show, when you thought that he was drinking a cocktail of some kind, it was usually just apple juice. Um, because um he rehearsed nothing he he read he read all of his monologues and jokes off of cue cards, oftentimes he would have flubs as as you're going to do when you're standing there and and reading stuff off cue cards cold that you've never seen before um but he would refuse to do retakes, so every time he would step on lines or he would stumble over words or any of that stuff, it was left in. <laughs> Which a makes it, it makes it it's kind of endearing almost that like oh look you know he screws up sometimes that's kind of funny but then it, it also plays into the fact that oh yeah he's drunk right if you're the audience and you're watching that oh well he he messed up that joke because he's drunk <laughs> and it, and it all becomes part of the show right and that and that
0: was what we called family entertainment when we were growing up yeah. <laughs>
3: Yep. Oh, honey, look
0: at the sorry little drunk messing up his lines.
3: Well, I was going to say, look, the alcoholic can't tell jokes properly.
0: <laughs> Which is something that we say at most Thanksgiving, right, T?
3: Right, exactly. <laughs> and yet he's
1: completely sober, making more money than anybody.
3: Right. <laughs> but but the audience likely just chalked it up to the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's boozing. He's, he's, he's drinking. So, of course, he's going to stumble over his words sometimes. Martin would perform two weekly solo musical numbers on the show. One was always a serious ballad. Um, he would also do song duets with his weekly guests. Um, he also did some uh, some comedy skits, and sometimes the songs he did would actually be comedy skits. There were regular performances in which Liberace would p- perform, and, <laughs> he, he and he and Dean would riff back and forth, and it would b- basically... What was supposed to be a, quote, musical guest would basically turn into a comedy guest.
0: (laughs) Again, Um, I'm so sad that I missed the time in history where Dean Martin would be on stage with Liberace. With
3: Liberace. Um, There was a recurring bit that involved Martin um, inserting gag lyrics into some of his classic songs in an attempt to break up his uh, pianist Ken Lane, pianist is a hard word to say when you've had a beer by the way. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> sounds like you're saying something else. <laughs> you don't fully form all of the all of the <laughs> syllables in that word. Um there would uh there was another recurring bit where there would always be a knock on a closet door each week that Martin would open to reveal an unannounced celebrity guest. And and now and I want to see if this sounds familiar LD there was uh, something called the Mystery Voice Contest, where Martin would invite viewers to guess who was singing a song that couldn't be seen.
0: It's like the mass Singer.
3: Right. And the song that was normally sung was, uh, by these, these mystery singers was Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. <laughs> On one occasion, the person singing Strangers in the Night, uh, unbeknownst to the audience, was in fact... Frank Sinatra. Oh my so, in keeping with uh, the the regular thing that they did, Dean Martin awarded uh, Frank Sinatra an all expenses paid trip to Los Angeles, which is what the singer got every week, despite the fact they were already in Los Angeles and Frank lived there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing.
4: Oh my God.
3: Yeah.
1: That's been um,
3: okay, uh, so the first season's guests, I just want to run over a partial list of some of the people who were on there. Okay, Don Adams, Eddie Albert, okay. Louis Armstrong. Oh, wow. Tony Bennett, Ch- Milton Berle, huh? Charo. Ch- Whoa. How old um, is
0: Charo? Uh,
3: like in her 70s or 80s. Oh, God,
0: she's still pretty, too, isn't she? She's yeah, she like is. a Geico ad, I think.
3: Right. <laughs> Um, this, this doesn't, um, hit the way it used to, but Bill Cosby. Mm, um, yeah. Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, wow. Bob Hope. Mahalia Jackson. Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop.
0: <gasps> <laughs> Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop? Yes.
3: Rich Little. Jackie oh. Mason. Roger Miller. Bob Newhart. And Rowan and Martin. Okay. Now, keep in mind, this is the mid-1960s. I picked those for specific reasons. One... That's some of the the, the the greatest singers of all time. You're talking Mahalia Jackson and Elvis Gerald and Roger <laughs> Miller. Yes. But also Bob Newhart and Rowan and Martin and some of the biggest comedians. Yes. A, Dean had star power. He had draw. He had some stroke. Oh, yeah. These are, these are the biggest names in, in entertainment in the 1960s. But it's also two distinct worlds, music and comedy, and it's but it's the biggest from both that wanted, and, and if Dean called and said, hey, uh, you want to be on my show Thursday night? You go, Hell yeah, of course I do. Who wouldn't have?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whew. I mean, so that's, that's, that's,
0: that is that's that, that is a lineup. I mean, like, I feel like, okay, this is going to be a weird analysis. I feel like in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, we have a set amount of celebrities. Right. If that makes sense when I say that. Now you've got because you had TV, radio, movies. And then, you know, everybody kinda stayed in their own lane when it came to that. And then there were those those peppered in that you had triple threats that could do
3: like like everything. like Dean.
0: Yeah, like deep. Now right. you have, you know, TikTokers and YouTubers and then you have T V film radio There are people right. And there are streaming. people who are just there yeah. are
3: people whose only claim to fame, but it's a pretty decent and, and, and good size claim to fame is well, what do you now why do I know your name oh because I have a YouTube channel where I watch music videos and I react to them
0: yeah Jamal that, a.k. that's Jamal. like a whole
3: that's his whole all right that's his own whole, whole, whole thing no life shack and Jamal aka Jamal and yeah lost in Vegas all those people that do that
0: yeah I mean and then you have like the beauty influencers and so it's people that are entertained by watching other people put on makeup literally mm-hmm. and and so mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now you've got something like, you know, the Jimmy Kimmel show will have a TikToker on.
3: Right. Or, you know, and, and, so why, and now why are you famous? Well, I made a 12 second video that a bajillion people watched.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
3: yeah
0: why yeah. not? Okay. Great. Why not? You know, Backpack Kid was on in a Katy Perry video because he moved his arms weird. Like, mm-hmm. that's. That's how you got, this is how you get famous today. I feel like before you actually had to have, oh God, what is that word? Talent. And <laughs> right. be able to actually use it.
4: Right.
0: Uh, and and so to be able to book people like Ella Fitzgerald, you actually had to have a relationship with them, but also have the talent to back up while you're booking them on the show.
3: Right. And. But, I, but at this point, if Dane called, you said yes. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter who you are, and you just if listen, Dean calls me,
0: if Dean calls me and says, "Hey, you want to be on my show?" I'm definitely going to be on his show.
3: Uh, that would be weird since he's not with us. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That would. Who would? But have? at least I would
0: die doing what I love.
3: Exactly. Okay, so I want to run down uh, a few of the people who were guests on the final season of the Dean Martin Show, and just see if you can pick up on a common theme. Now, this isn't everybody, but just a few: Donna Fargo, Tom T. Hall, Ferlin Husky loretta lynn ray price charlie rich Jeannie c riley johnny russell and the statler brothers
0: i'm feeling a little bit more country
3: a lot Mm -hmm. more country uh now it might seem like an oddity for an italian american from ohio born in the early part of the 1900s to be a country music fan but martin decidedly was one um His final album, as we've already mentioned, was a collection of country classic covers. But in the 1960s, he put out the album Dean Tex Martin Rides Again. He had another album called Houston. He had one called Welcome to My World. And he had one called Gentle on My Mind, all of which featured some country and Western songs by artists such as Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, and Buck Owens, uh, or songs that had been originally made famous by them. Dean Martin. is a, was a country music fan, is basically what I'm getting at here. So before we get to the most infamous part of the Dean Martin Show's legacy, why don't we hear one of those? Now, we heard the, the title Gentle on My Mind just a minute ago. If you're not familiar with that song, it's it's beautiful. Uh, it was written by John Hartford. It was, uh, a, I don't know if it was originally recorded by, but it was certainly made most famous by Glenn Campbell. So why don't we hear Dean Martin's rendering of uh, that all-time classic, Here's Dane Martin now doing Gentle On My Mind.
5: It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds, and the ink stains that have dried up on some line keeps you in the back rows by the rivers of my memory, keeps you ever gently on my mind. It's not clinging to the rocks and ivy plants on the columns now that finds me. There's something that somebody said because they thought we fit together walking. It's just knowing that the world will not be cursing nor given when I walk along some railroad track and find On a back road by the rivers of my memory And for hours you're just gently on the line But well, I dip my cup of soup back from the girth and crack And called in some train yard. My beard a rough and coal pile And a dirty hat pulled low across my face Cup cans round a tin can, I pretend i hold you to my breast and find That you're waving from the black hole by the river of my memory, ever smiling, ever gentle on the mind
0: To hear musically a shift in his
3: almost like genre, sure. And that's not a country song. It well, it was. It, it's a country song, but when he does it, that it doesn't. I mean, there's not fiddles and banjos and a nasally twang to it. But uh, I mean, obviously he loved the song and he liked a lot of country songs. It, it sounded like, based on on what he ended up recording, especially later in his career. So that that was something he was influenced by, and he. In turn was uh an influencer to some country and rockabilly artists, including Elvis Presley. Yeah. Um, Elvis one. patterned his uh the his vocal delivery on Love Me Tender after Dean Martin and was apparently was a big Dean Martin fan. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so songs like the one we heard just now, his version of Gentle on My Mind, along with his appearances in a lot of cowboy movies, actually helped create and make popular the idea of the crooning cowboy now
0: wait was he in rio bravo
3: he, he sure was <laughs> gonna, when we get to the ah. very end of this episode we're going to hear a song from rio bravo We look at me
0: knowing stuff about the history of cinema
3: yeah oh well, uh, perhaps that that's because
0: is, it's on the it's i believe it's on the a, the 2008 version of the afi top 100 films of all time
3: okay uh, but but back to his show, one of the most popular segments uh, of the Dean Martin show was when he began to incorporate celebrity roasts into his program.
0: Oh, there it is. I was wondering when it was going to show up.
3: Yeah, so the often improvised jokes and Martin's frequent use of vulgar Italian phrases <laughs> began to rankle NBC network censors who started to demand that they have more input and control over what was being said. Because a lot of times yeah, it's like, okay, well here's our script, but that'd go off of it a thousand times during an episode. <laughs> you know also, you
0: know, you, you say the Italian thing the the Italian curse words being the same thing happened in the movie Greece, where they were they where they worked in uh, hey bongo, hmm. I'm Sandra D during Look at Me, I'm Sandra D and no one caught that there was like this <laughs> horrific thing being said by right. Rizzo. Mm-hmm. Well done, Dean.
3: By the final season, Martin, who was very financially comfortable by this time, began to reduce his schedule. And the very last season was comprised mostly of celebrity roasts, which required even less uh, input and involvement from him than he had already negotiated there be, which wasn't much. There were later legal disputes over ownership and DVD sales of the, the Dean Martin show. But just sales of Dean Martin's Roast, which continued as um, a a regular uh, special on NBC television, topped hundreds of millions of dollars.
4: Hmm. Because if you remember,
3: Guthy Rinker ran infomercials for the Dean Martin roasts. I remember that they always
0: showed uh, the Lucille Ball clip.
3: Right. Yep, they sure did. And but those those were were a, a very popular seller to the point that that company made li- literally hundreds of millions of dollars off of them. Jeez. And there ended up being a lot of lawsuits and stuff uh, uh, over that kind of uh, thing. But you know, Dean Dean made his money, and I, I don't guess he cared. <laughs>
6: anyway, now,
3: I think he was he was gone by that time, anyways. So now, like,
0: he it, is the Comedy Central roasts? Are they within the Friars Club? Like, is that? sanctioned kind of like uh, you can buy the name uh national yeah Antony. i don't i
1: don't I don't. yeah i'm not sure how any of that works like the I'm dean let it. them do it or the dean estate the, the yeah. dean estate I think, well i think that
3: that started with the friars club didn't it
0: well that's what i was saying is like you know it's it's the friars club it's the it's the dean martin roast and it's the friars club that did it but i don't know if it's because it, they never say the friars club present the comedy central roast of It's just. The Comedy Central roast of right, it's the same format, and you feel like that's so much of a plagiarized right. But b- you know, so there would be plagiarizing I, so what much say, that maybe roast, a roast
3: date roast date back to at least the nineteen twenties, from what I've read about okay it. So, yeah, so I, I don't know if if who who started them or or popularized them or, or whatever, but Dean D- Dean certainly probably brought them to a big audience for the first time. I would say. Right. Uh, yeah, because he put him on network television in the nineteen early 1970s, which I doubt anybody had heard of him before then. There were some major changes in uh, Martin's life around this time. His TV series ended, as did his contract with the Riviera Hotel and Casino. That apparently stemmed from them balking at his insistence that he only be required to perform one show per night. They wanted him to do two or three shows a night. The MGM Hotel... Uh, apparently snapped him up immediately after this. And the parent company, MGM, also signed him to a three-picture movie deal. Unfortunately, uh, his marriage to uh, Jeannie fell apart at this time as well. Oh, that's the couple, a shame. Yeah, the couple had three children together and were considered a celebrity-it couple for many years. But they separated in 1969 per a statement that she made through a publicist. They didn't actually divorce until 1972, however. Um, uh, there's a quote that I read that was something along the lines of Dean's viewers knew that he was a good husband and father and that the booze and broads jokes were just part of the act. That was from uh, a guy named Lee Hale in a book from 2000 called Backstage at the Dean Martin Show. So why did they divorce? None of your damn business. (laughs) Some stuff is private, y'all. I actually really couldn't find definitive reasons why that came about necessarily, but they they did get divorced. But in 1973, he was remarried to a lady named Catherine Hager, who was uh, an employee at a hair salon. He adopted her daughter, Sasha, but they divorced in 1976 and did not have any children biologically between the two of them. While one relationship was falling apart, however, another was reformed. I read a 2016 Vanity Fair article, and I'm I'm borrowing a lot of this from that story. You should totally go look it up. Really, really good story with a lot of good details. Mm -hmm. But it talks about September 5th, 1976. Now, LD and and Will the Thrill, would September the 5th-ish in a given year in the,
0: in in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Freddie Mercury, Freddie Mercury. Mercury. Well, but but,
3: would that, September the 5th. uh, Aside from that, would it do anything? Was there something else that would be happening about that time every year in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that would be significant? How about the uh, Jerry Lewis, uh, Oh, uh, the the telethon. telethon, Oh, Oh,
0: like I would, I'm sorry, if you were like, hey, Lindley, September 5th is important for what reason? It's Freddie Mercury. It's always Freddie Mercury. Sure. Like,
3: but it's, it's hard to get past. I understand. Very hard to get past that. Um, however, uh, of course, Jerry Lewis held a telethon every year for uh, 40, 40 years, maybe, at least, I'm guessing, to raise um, money for muscular dystrophy. Well, on September 5th, 1976... Frank Sinatra would, would be performing live instead of via remote location for the first time in more than 20 years. So, actually, the, the Jerry Lewis telephone dates back to the 50s,
1: believe it or not. Unbelievable.
3: So, Frank did his set live, introduced by his longtime very good friend Jerry Lewis. And then he presented Jerry with a couple of donations, including one for $5,000, which he said was uh, on behalf of his grandchildren. Then he said, quote, listen, I have a friend who loves what you do every year and who just wanted to come out. Could you send my friend out, please? Mm -hmm. At that exact moment in New York, Martin's six-year-old grandson heard his mother scream. What's the matter, mom? He asked. She just pointed at the TV and said, it's your grandfather. (laughs) She she said that she knew uh, just... But before you could even see his face, who it was, because uh, she knew her father's walk. She said she got chills. My jaw dropped. I called my sister and said, I can't believe this. Out walked none other than Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. So he and Jerry Lewis were looking at each other face to face for the first time in 20 years. Jeez. Oh, wow. And Jerry Lewis didn't know that this was happening.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Which really, which really adds to, to the shock. And, and, and I'm just going to encourage everybody, please go read that Vanity Fair story and please watch the videos that accompany it because it is unbelievable if you see the reaction that, that the two of them have. <laughs> Having not been on a stage together for 20 years, there was a standing ovation from the audience that lasted well over a minute. <laughs>
4: wow.
3: That was so raucous that there was almost no point in either of them saying anything. Sinatra just smiled and said, here they are folks, with one arm around Lewis's shoulder. Uh, Lewis was caught totally off guard. He said, quote, you son of a bitch.
4: <laughs> to Frank.
3: <laughs> As Frank stepped aside, just beaming from ear to ear, the two old friends joked and laughed. So, uh, you're working? Lewis asked <laughs> his, his friend, Dean. Okay, uh, Lewis's manager at the time later acknowledged that no one other than Sinatra could possibly have, set, have staged such a reunion. Frank actually hid uh, Martin in the dressing room of Ed McMahon, who was the co-host of the telethon that year and <laughs> the other years. Singer Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys, who is Jerry's son, of course, performed on the, the telethon that year and then he was sort of an errand boy for his dad doing a lot of backstage work. He walked past the, the a partly open dressing room door and saw Dean Martin sitting inside. However, he decided to keep quiet and not say anything to his dad about it, even though he had no idea what was going on.
4: He wow. just walks by
3: and like, Oh, look, there's dad's long time, estranged comedy partner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I have no, I have no uh pony in this race. So, um, Moving on.
3: But but the thing is is he also knew that his father did not like surprises. Apparently Jerry Lewis was not a a fan of of people, um surprising him with much of anything.
4: Hmm.
3: But even so he he kept quiet. And then there was a, an effort by a lot of the stagehands who were involved in this um I I, I don't even know, what would you call it a prank sort of Kind of uh, a prank, kind of a surprise, kind of a, a moment.
0: Uh, An avalanche of stuff. Of,
3: of, yeah, of just stuff. But everybody, everybody who knew anything about this was sworn to secrecy, not just in keeping it from Jerry. They didn't want the press to know what was about to happen because they wanted this to be an authentic surprise. So even other performers who were semi-clued in or... Staff members. Nobody was allowed to leave the building. (laughs) As an example, Marilyn McCoo and the Fifth Dimension. Oh
0: my gosh, we know them.
3: Yeah. That okay? Well, they performed at this uh, telethon. They were not allowed to leave the building until after Dean walked out because they didn't. They, the people who were involved in this, did not want anybody to know, and they certainly didn't want it to leak into the press before it actually happened. They wanted it to be an authentic surprise. Wow. And it is worth mentioning that once Dean came out and he and Jerry embraced and made some jokes and the the crowd gave them a lengthy standing ovation that the, the telephone that year broke every record for fundraising. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Gary Lewis actually loved Dean Martin. He referred to him as uncle Dean growing up. He said, um, I had real long hair and was wearing weird clothes at the time of the meeting backstage uh, in uh, Vegas in the seventies when they're going to do this telephone. So he actually walked up and introduced himself to Dean because he didn't know if Dean would recognize him given his appearance. And he said that uh, Dean said something along the lines of, of course, I know you, how are you Pally? And Pally was his term of endearment of choice from, from what I've, from from what I've read. Uh Um, so this happened in Las Vegas. All of this, this this telethon was broadcast live from Las Vegas, and I think you have a song that that kind of fits the mood here.
0: Oh, you know, I I have to work in one of my favorite songs from Dean because it's it, it's a humorous take. It's it's funny and so uh, it's not exactly entirely PC. <laughs> So, sorry for that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a medley called Drink to Me Only. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it.
5: Drink to me only. That's all I ask. ask. And I will drink to. How long I've been on (laughs) I don't care if the sun don't shine I do my drinking in the evening time when I'm in Las Vegas you can sit in the sun and camp I get my color from a sunray lamp when I'm in las vegas i love the laughs and love the life there's fun of every kind next time i come i'll bring my wife i'll do that if i lose my mind a wife in vegas take my advice it's like going to china with a sack of rice but i love las vegas I love Vegas in the summer Mmm... I love it in the fall I love Vegas May I say that it's a gasser Yeah I love Vegas Like it's Egypt And I am Nasser I... I love Vegas every moment Ooh, it's my favorite atmosphere I love Vegas Why, why do I love Vegas? Because my money's here I love Vegas when I'm winning mm, I love it when I lose I love Vegas like the Army loves its manuals I love Vegas like Sinatra loves Jack Daniels I I love Vegas every moment Oh, Mr. Entrada, I must cheer Hey, you smart, boy! I I love Vegas Ach, du lieber, do I love Vegas Because my blood is here I love Vegas when I'm loaded I love Vegas when I am not I love Vegas just like Khrushchev Loves being indignant More than even my wife Jeannie Loves being pregnant Ah. I- I love Vegas every moment When I leave, I shed a tear Oh, I love Vegas Jesus Christ, do I love Vegas I'll make it, make it good and clear It's because my girl's
4: right here.
3: Dean Martin, ladies and gentlemen. And
0: I just, I love that song so much. And I know it fits more in, like, his uh heyday with like the rat pack and the kind of antics that they have on stage but there wasn't really a moment where we wouldn't like triple stack during that time so we're playing a little bit out of chronological order but i needed that song in my life so who cares yep dean martin stop stop fighting dean
3: martin tell you what go take it up with frank if you got a problem with it yeah pretty much (laughs) yeah see how that works for you Okay so after this uh, brief reunion during the MDA telethon on uh, you know the Labor Day weekend and uh, I guess 1976ish there were actually plans for a new Martin and Lewis movie would have been set in Las Vegas both of them apparently agreed to do it as did Frank Sinatra but for, for whatever reason it ultimately fell apart and never came to be unfortunately
0: Oh well, that's sad
3: Yeah yeah it was really sad In the early 80s, Martin actually made a music video, believe it or not, for the song Since I Met You Baby, which did garner a little bit of MTV airplay in the early (laughs) days of that channel and became a minor hit for him. He did a few appearances here and there, but mostly at this point, now well into his 60s, he just kind of chilled and played golf. Unfortunately, on March 21st, 1987, his son, Dean Paul Martin, died. His F-4 Phantom jet fighter, uh, which he was flying as a member of the California Air National Guard, crashed into a mountain. Oddly, and 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 a little bit of a cruel twist of irony, Sinatra's mother died in a crash into that same mountain
4: about oh, a year geez. before that. Oh wow! Whoa!
3: Um, he was at one point a quote teeny bopper singer, and he had actually been married at one point to Olympian. Dorothy Hamill.
0: The creator of the Hamill haircut.
3: <laughs> That's right.
0: I, I actually you know, believe mom gave me that haircut when I was a kid.
3: You know, I've always heard about, you know, if your spouse dies, you're called a widow or a widower. But what what do they call it when your your kid dies? Nothing, right? Yeah. If your parents die, you're an orphan. If, you're, if your spouse dies, you're a widow or a widower. But what do they call it when a, a child dies? There's not a word bad enough to talk about how bad that is. And and this apparently had a really, really bad impact on Dean. He did continue to perform after this because he had some shows, including one, a couple in Vegas, that were scheduled ten days after his, you know, his son died in this plane crash. And he initially told his family, "I I can't do it. I I just can't. I'm, I'm too broken up." But three days later, he told them, "Well, you know what? Why shouldn't I do it?" And and I think being on stage in front of people who loved him and Doing what he did best, I think it was almost cathartic for him, probably because it was something that was normal. It was, it was, but it was almost therapeutic. As, as, as I read a lot of different stories about that that period of time in his life, and this continues to play a role for the remainder of his years. But I, I think that in some ways, going out less than two weeks after his son died and performing in Las Vegas was, was probably the best thing for him at that time. What is what it seemed like?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think, well, you can kind of attest to this was, you know, if you have someone who passes away in your life, really at that point, a lot of people just go into full work mode.
4: Yeah.
0: And I it think, happens. you know, your grandmother passed and you just work, 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 work. And that's how you, that's how you dealt with your grief
1: yeah or escaped it whichever you want to
0: choose yeah and I just think working sometimes is how people can deal with the pain and yeah being in front of you know a crowd of people that you know are there to see you maybe helps solidify like it's going to be okay it's there's a lot of pain and hurt right now but it will get better
3: yeah it's, it's a distraction it's uh, a way to channel, uh, a place to channel your energies and efforts, and then you know, it's probably he's probably doing what what he loves doing. I'm going to stand in front of a thousand people who adore me, and are going to clap and and they're going to applaud, and and that's that's but that's what that had been his life for the previous. God, 50 years, 40 years, at least. So yeah, that was probably a big part of, of, of the recovery, such as he had one, which is what we, we will get into that a little more in just a minute. Oh, So once this um, this this crash occurred, he and Jeannie actually kind of reconciled. And I watched an interview just before he played in Britain. I, I, I presume that it was from uh, BBC, I guess, where he talked about the fact that they were going to remarry Mm-hmm. Now, now that never actually happened, but they did have a relationship that would last the rest of his life. At the funeral was one Jerry Lewis. Mm-hmm. This was the, the and this this was, so they they had the the reconciliation uh, sort of on stage by surprise, lined up by Frank Sinatra in 19, in 1976. Well, Jerry Lewis showed up at the funeral. He sat in the back. He said nothing to anybody, and he left as soon as it was over but the 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 Martin family apparently really really appreciated that and thought it was a, a very classy gesture on his part to show up, even though they still weren't on great terms necessarily uh, and there was apparently still a lot of static between them that, that Lewis said he never actually understood or knew why it existed but um that 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 happened and and Dean and Jeannie sort of got back together because he was already divorced from his third wife by this time. And in the interview I watched, he actually talked about them remarrying, but that never did happen. But they, they continued to have some sort of a relationship until his death. It was actually Jerry Lewis after uh, in an interview that happened after this funeral said that he had this vision sort of that he and Martin would fully reconcile it. At some point, they would end up being best buddies again and that they would, play golf together in their old age. That didn't happen, but they did talk on occasion, which is about as close, I guess, as in his very last years as Dean got to pretty much anybody. So uh, among the the few final public acts that Dean Martin carried out was a tour that Sinatra convinced him to undertake in the very (laughs) late 80s. It was the two of them along with Sammy Davis Jr. He conceived of that largely as a way to pull his buddy out of the funk that he found himself in, and 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 from everything I've read about the depression that he found himself in after after his son died in that uh, plane crash, uh, they, they did a number of dates. Dean went along with it, but he liked a club sized audience, that because that's what he he was used to, and this was a big deal at this point because it's wild. Three members of the Rat Pack back together in the late '80s, so they were playing much much larger venues, and apparently Dean felt a little bit disconnected from the audience in those. It was He felt like it was less personal. He was a little less comfortable. And he largely went, went along with it because cause Frank wanted him to do it. So it didn't, I don't think, have the, it really have the desired effect of kind of pulling him out of the depression that he was dealing with. Uh, a- after that, he pretty much retired from the public eye. He did appear on a special honoring Sammy Davis Jr., which unfortunately took place not long before his old friend died yeah it
0: was to honor his 60 years in entertainment correct like true it was like I, the same I think that's day tr- yeah yeah
3: i think that's right yeah and so he he was on that one though he had vowed to perform all the way up to the end of his life his final public appearance was actually at frank sinatra's 75th birthday party <laughs> which took place in 1990. three years later Martin who had completely retired from the public eye was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. He was told that he could prolong his life with surgery, but he declined to do so. One of his daughters said, quote, he'd done all that he wanted to do. Mm. And the picture that's painted of his last, you know, months and, and a couple of years on life is a little bit of a sad one that he would have a driver pick him up every evening, take him to his favorite restaurant, he would go there, he'd eat some pasta, drink red wine by himself, and then he would be taken home. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah,
3: that he, the, the death the death of his son was just an absolute crushing blow to him.
0: Well, I mean, the idea that no parent should have to bury their child, I think that that's, this is one of the things, you brought this child into the world. You watched them grow, you watched them become what they were, and then all of a sudden, he was so violently ripped from you. That, that I, I do not blame him at all with no
3: and, and with no in and, and those in that circumstance with no time to prepare for it. It's not like he had a rare illness. He was sick for a long time. I mean his his son was young. He was in his thirties. He was healthy. He's guys flying jet fighters in the California Air National Guard. And they he gets a call one day, Oh, there's been a crash and your son died. You know, yeah. the so the the jarring nature of that. I can't even start to get my head around how how horrible that would be. He and Frank did talk on the phone occasionally. He and Lewis talked on the phone occasionally. And, okay, the weird thing is I read two different versions of how he passed. Now, there's no doubt that Dean left us at 3.30 a.m. on Christmas morning, 1995.
4: Hmm.
3: Okay, one version of the story is that he had gone out to dinner at his re- Restaurant of choice had his little pasta dinner, drank some red wine, came home, watched TV, had a coughing fit, and the the folks who worked for him check were checking on him periodically during the night, and they came in and found him deceased. The other is that Jeannie was actually with him and knew that the end was near and held him as he as he passed. But whatever it it happened and however it unfolded, Dean Martin left us on. December twenty fifth, Christmas, nineteen ninety five, at three thirty in the morning. I um,
0: remember. I, I remember that Christmas. Yeah, because I was fifteen. Right. And I remember Mom being pretty upset by
3: that. Lots of people, uh, probably Grandma too, at that point. I mean, because you're talking about a, a, a one of the a, an all timer and an old timer, but an old time uh, an all timer. I, I would say with with Dino somebody that that would have been it had enduring popularity over multiple generations. Yeah. So he was buried three days later, so on, on our mother's birthday, sure. December 28th, at a ceremony that involved his family, Jerry Lewis, Rosemary Clooney, Shirley MacLaine, who joked that she had talked to Dean an hour before the, the uh, service took place, Tony Danza, Bob <laughs> Newhart, Charles Nelson Reilly, Dorothy Hamill, Don Rickles, and Robert Stack.
0: Ooh. Wow.
3: Notably absent was Frank. Uh, yeah. Frank Sinatra. Now, he he did send, I think, Nancy Sinatra on, on his uh, I think she was a, his, his emissary,
1: yeah.
3: Yeah, to, to represent. But there were two things at play. One, Frank was... Ex- was not in good health at this point himself and the other is that and he apparently admitted this at some point it would have just been too much for him to bear emotionally he, he could not have stood to have seen they were so close they considered one another almost brothers that Frank said he li- literally didn't know if he could have made it through it
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah so that's that's a very difficult thing to kind of get your head around because you have you know the the, the attitude <laughs> or, or the the image you have of Frank in your head, is almost the Phil Hartman version of him from Saturday Night Live, or he's just this complete badass, the ball chick, what's with a head? <laughs> kind of but that this was that this was a crushing blow to him. They were so close, and they're so different in so many ways, really, because Frank really was the image that the Rat Pack had. Dean kind of played the role of it on stage and on screen, it seemed like. But, but still, they'd known each other for over for about 50 years at that point and considered one another brothers and it, it was just Frank said he just literally he just couldn't do it. He could not bring himself to go see his his friend's funeral like that.
0: Yeah, and just for everybody to know, he's buried in the Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Right. Which I, um, I we talked about this during the, the Sammy Davis Jr. was like, "I really only know of the two uh big cemeteries out here which is the forest lawn one and then hollywood the forever. hollywood forever we actually have a cemetery that's pretty close uh to our house and i'm wondering like westwood is more of the ucla area right
4: yeah you know, that's USC. by the VA
0: hospital yeah okay yeah so it's a little bit farther down from us it's maybe like a, a what 30 to 45 minute
3: drive yeah, yeah so give or take
0: los angeles is a very big city
3: So as you kind of go back and look over the life of this guy, you realize that that for a very long time, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. He was a star of radio, of early television, of film. He was part of one of the the most popular and most successful comedy duos of all time. He had nine gold albums and uh, dozens of top 40 hits. He was, he touched almost every area you could imagine. But as I I kind of thought, like, well, how do I sum up what an impact he had and how cool he was and how multi-generational he was? And I found it in a story about one of his grandsons. And and this is where where I'm going to check out on this. So one of his grandsons comes home to his mother at one point and said, hey, I bought a, a new skateboard today. And she was like, okay, that's cool. No, no, no. You got to see this thing. Granddad's pictures on it. And it's him and like it's him and two other dudes. So, the grandson at this point in his teens, I, I would presume in uh, probably the early to mid 80s when skateboarding was a, a a really popular and cool thing, went to a skateboard shop and bought a board that had Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr's picture on it.
0: Wow. That is pretty awesome. That's awesome.
3: And the mom was floored. I also find it incredibly funny that he, he referred to the three people on the, p- pictured on the skateboard as Grandpa and two other dudes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: yeah two, just these two other guys called Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, maybe you um, heard
1: of them. Yeah,
3: yeah but I, I can't think of a, of a better way to, 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 to sum up the multi-generational, completely cool, always relevant legacy of Dean Martin.
0: What an awesome episode. Jesus, mm-hmm. what a life, man. Yeah, That's insane.
3: Yeah. And I have, we have a song we're going to close out with, but I know you have to do the, uh, the socials and whatnot at the very end.
0: The socials and stuff. So, yeah, if you think that we're doing an amazing job, which I think we are. totally did, you should head over to patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven and drop a dollar or two. If you would like to interact with us on Twitter, you can go to rock and roll LT. Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website and you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And please uh, also, if you could head over to Apple, uh, the Apple iTunes music store and leave a rating and review for the show. It really helps us out a lot. And uh, you know, instead of giving us one star, why don't you email us and yell at us that way. If you want to give us five stars, we're totally down for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for checking this episode out. Please check us out next week where we are going to be talking about
1: the chairman of the board. Frank the chairman.
0: Closing it out with old blue eyes on my birthday. Well, mm-hmm. it'll it'll be circa, my birthday. Birthday. circa yeah. my birthday adjacent to that. Actually, this episode comes out the day after my birthday. So, mm-hmm. woo woo. And then we will begin our series on the Ookie Spooky 27 Club. I know a lot of people have been very excited about that series. So uh, thanks, guys. Check us out next week, and have a great
3: weekend.
1: So long, farewell, see you next week. And,
3: and, we're going to take people out with some music. Let's leave them on a good note. This is, I, I don't know how... Huge of a hit this was necessarily, but this is probably one of my favorite Dean Martin songs, for no other reason than in a, about circa two thousand three, somebody gave me a mix CD that had this on it. Okay. Along with a, a, a lot of okay. like Americana country songs, for some reason this was the this was the closer, and and I just heard it over and over and over. And now I just love the song. This is from the movie Rio Bravo. Mm-hmm. One, one, a, a big popular western that Dean Martin was in. This is the song, "My Rifle, My Pony, and Me." Have a great week, everybody.
5: The sun is sinking in the west. The cattle go down to the stream The red wing settles in the nest It's time for a cowboy to dream Purple lies in the canyons That's where I long to be Three. My rifle, pony, and me. Just my rifle, my pony. My rifle pony and me. No more cow, no more cow to be be roped. No more stray, no more stray. Will I see? Rifle.